Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome back to Backchat. If the Nature Podcast is a patient principal investigator, then Backchat is the overzealous PhD student, convinced they're going to cure cancer in the first six months. Tops. This month, why it's hard to get into science, why you don't have any money once you're in, and why your next grant proposal might be to Mark Zuckerberg. I'm Adam Levy, and joining me this month in the studio, we have Lizzie Gibney. Hello, Adam. I'm a senior reporter here in London covering physical sciences. On the line from Washington, D.C., we have Mitch Waldrop. Hello, Adam. Uh, I am a features editor for Nature, working out of Washington, D.C. And last but not least, we have Cory Locke from Boston. Hi, I'm one of the editors. Um, I write features and edit research highlights out of Boston. And if you're wondering why Corey's voice sounds familiar, that's because she reads the research highlights on the regular Nature podcast show. Coming up, scientific research isn't exactly known as the most lucrative profession, but is it getting worse for people at the bottom and better at the top? But the answer to that question is somewhat academic if you can't get your foot in the door of science in the first place. We'll take a look at the barriers to entering science and how they vary across the world. And to cheer us up after all that, we'll consider how feasible it is to tackle all diseases by the end of the century and how feasible it is to leave important funding decisions in the hands of the inventor of Facebook. First up, let's turn to paychecks. Corey, you recently wrote a feature on income inequality. How bad is income inequality in science? And is it getting better or worse? Uh, yeah, it's definitely getting worse. Um, for my story, I uh, talked to a bunch of uh, labor economists who study the scientific workforce, and they, uh, they did some analysis of some uh, salary data. And they showed that uh, income inequality is uh, on the rise. It's, in fact, more than doubled since the 1970s. Um, and for comparison's sake, uh, for U.S. households in general, for that same time period, it went up by just 18%. So this definitely mirrors trends that we've seen across society uh, of widening uh, income gaps between uh, the highest paid and the lowest paid uh, people. You know, the top 1% is is a hot political issue uh, in many countries. And so we thought it'd be interesting to see if there's such a thing in science. And there certainly is. You mentioned that it mirrors what's going on in wider society. But the numbers you just gave, it seems like it's worse in science. Well, it depends on how you look at it. So the rate of increase has been pretty high. But um, economists tell me that that's mainly because historically, scientists uh, have been paid more equally than 
than across the general population. So any increase you see uh, is going to be seen to be pretty, pretty large. Uh, but they are increasing among scientists, and I don't think that gap is going to be shrinking anytime soon. What is it about the professors who get these much larger salaries that leads the universities to want to pay them so much? Is it that they can bring in lots of grants or that they can somehow handle lots of graduate students? Or what is it? You know, it's it's hard to know for sure. Uh, the economists I talk to, um, you know, certainly were speculating about uh, different reasons. You know, one is certainly globalization. Uh, universities want to hire top talent. They want to hire people who are proven to get good grants to bring money into the university. And so uh, that may create a bidding war for these for these top-notch scientists. There's growing competition for a, a small pool of uh, grant-getting scientists. So far, we've mostly discussed how things are getting better for people at the top. Are things getting worse for people at the bottom or are they just relatively stagnant? I think it's more stagnant. Um, there's just not a lot of pressure uh, at the lower end of the spectrum to increase wages. You know, something that came up in my reporting is is that there's also sort of a culture among scientists that, you know, you shouldn't be doing this for money. So we don't talk about money. We don't ask for money. You know, and, and some people say that maybe that can be kind of taken advantage of. I think that's it. People do the job because they love it, don't they? But actually, you still need to be able to get by and, and, and live. I think there was a, there's an interesting question when I was at the, um, the ICEP, the International Conference of High Energy Physics, to Fabiola Gianotti, the head of CERN. And somebody said to her, "What can you? how can you reassure all the young people here in the audience that this is a field worth pursuing and that, you know, they might be worried at the moment? And she just said, well, if you if you love it, then you should be doing it. No one should do it who doesn't love it. And I thought that's true, but that's also kind of harsh. Like when you're in it at that level, it's very tenuous. And as as Corey's been finding out, you don't get paid an awful lot. And and so that uh, kind of brings in the whole socioeconomic diversity issue, right? You're kind of selecting for people who can afford to live that kind of lifestyle, you know? People who may come from, say, a disadvantaged background, who, you know, maybe are concerned a little bit more about the bottom line. I don't know. They may not feel always welcome. We often... um, talk about the science working like a pyramid. So you have a very few people at the top, you know, you have your your PIs and then your heads of department, and then they have lots of grad students and postdocs who are a bit more like the kind of worker bees. Do we know if that's, is that broadening? Uh, Maybe something for another story. I didn't, I didn't quite get into that. One thing I did come across, um, at least in the US anyway, there seems to be a growth in the number of adjunct positions. So non-tenure track uh, positions in academia. And these folks do a lot of work teaching, but they're, they don't get paid very much. Sometimes they can be paid even less than postdocs. And if the, the salaries for a handful of very top people are going up to such extreme levels, then that gives universities incentive to rely more and more on adjunct professors who are very, very cheap in comparison. What kind of salaries are we talking about for those at the top? How astronomical are they? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, We went to a website put out by the University of California. You can look up the salary of any employee at the University of California. And so we searched by salary range, and we we found at least 10 non-clinical researchers uh, took home more than $400,000 U.S. each year, uh, a year in 2015. 
Um, and that's just the non-clinical folks. Uh, we found 29 medical researchers who took home more than a million dollars. We all, I suppose, at one point in our careers or another, decided that research wasn't fast. Do you think if the there were big bucks at the at the bottom, you might have stayed in research? Yeah, I should probably point out in case anyone is thinking of making the switch, uh, journalism doesn't pay all that well either. <laughs> Yeah, that's another profession where we're told that you should be doing it for the love of it. Yeah, just in case people were thinking, oh, finally, nature's told me what I could be doing better I, with my time. I thought once I'd been here two years, my pay my <laughs> paycheck would skyrocket. I only I only came to this industry for the big bucks, right, and the big prestige. That's a downside of income inequality: is that if if you find yourself at the bottom. Um, and not quite good enough to kind of make it into the the big leagues. Uh, some promising scientists may decide to kind of move on and, and find jobs outside of academia or outside of research. I would suspect that it's not simply the level of the salary, it's the uncertainty of whether you're actually going to have a career, will you get tenure, um, where will you get tenure, how do you even start a family if you're having to move around all the time. You know, there, there are all these extra factors uh, of which the level of salary contributes. We should mention that Curry's feature was actually a part of an inequality special, and one of the other pieces was actually on these kind of barriers that stop people entering or sticking around in science. Mitch, you looked at this question quite a bit and how this question varies around the world. We've touched on the fact that money is certainly an issue. What what other kind of universal barriers around the world are there for stopping people entering science? Uh, in the feature, we looked at eight different countries, uh, including some very rich countries, the U.S., United Kingdom, and uh, developing economies, uh, Brazil, China. Uh, and there were some striking things. Uh, one is that every country is struggles with this in one way or another, but uh, the way it played out was quite different. In the United States, for generations, there was a consensus at every level of government that an educated populace was good for everybody and therefore that higher education should be supported by the state. But starting about 30 years ago, 35 years ago, the the consensus began to shift and the idea emerged that, well, the benefits of education in terms of your career and lifetime salary and so forth, are very large and they accrue to the individual. Therefore, the individual should be the person paying. One of the effects of that is that the tuition, even in state schools, has skyrocketed. It's not at all uncommon to see tuition, annual tuition in the tens of thousands of dollars. So Lizzie, in this feature, you had a look at the barriers to entering science in the UK. How similar a picture to what Mitch just described do we see over here? Well, fees are a bit less of an issue, although a growing issue in the UK. But what it seems like in the UK is there's a bit of a... For certain groups of, of, of young people, there is just a lack of access to science in their everyday life. So there was a really interesting study. It's called Aspires, and it's by King's College London. And they looked at um, kids aged about 11 through to 14. And almost all of them said they really enjoyed science. They loved science. They found it interesting. But very, very few of them said that they thought they wanted a career in science um, or that they thought science was for them. It was like it was seen as some other kind of lofty idea that was interesting, but nothing really connected to their work world. 
it seems like maybe the whole scientific community and teaching community have an effort to do in terms of injecting a bit more of the reality of science and at a, at a really young age. Yeah, Lizzie, you put your finger on something uh, that I think is very, very important. I was really struck that the, uh, the working class students just didn't conceive of themselves as scientists. They didn't see it as relevant to them. Uh, and I think why that's important is that what we call class uh, isn't just a matter of money. There are deep cultural assumptions woven in, uh, and these assumptions relate to you know, who you are and what you can expect out of life. Very often what you find in the U.S., uh, very much in inner cities, they don't believe they can do it. And that's a profound difference. And it, it, it's much more than simple lack of money. If you're from a more privileged background, you're probably expecting to go into a career that you love, that is important. Whereas if you if you really have to worry about money or that's the kind of background you come from, it's probably more about just living and earning and getting by. Right, just getting a job. And this is in the context of more economically developed countries. But in, in this feature, you also looked at some developing economies, China and Kenya. Is this still a factor over there or are there other factors that are more prevalent? Well, I suspect it is a factor, but of course, there they're looking at such widespread poverty that it, it may not be the most urgent one. What I was struck by was that they still had this idea that education is good for everyone. So in Kenya, for example, there is lots of support for students, uh, even rural uh, poor students, who want to go to college. The problem there is that they have so little in the way of a scientific establishment, a, a scientific enterprise, that there are very few opportunities for even the brightest students to get a, um, uh, a postgraduate education within Kenya. One other thing that I just wanted to, to point out, because it came up quite a lot in my reporting, I think science is getting better at recognising diversity um, and especially having, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more obvious if you have a panel and there are no women and there are only white people. But it's not so obvious if everybody there is from a wealthy background. So it's like a bit harder sometimes to um, to see when it's happening. But, but somebody said to me... Um, that maybe this is the next kind of diversity frontier that, that we might start pushing in on. With that in mind, when we cover stories like this, be it income inequality or barriers for people entering science, when you speak to people, is the attitude, OK, there is this problem, but we're going to fix it? Or is it still at the stage of just recognising the problem? Um, I think it, the issue is who you talk to. Uh, we, I, I kind of spoke to a lot of people who I knew already thought this was an issue because they would have the data and they'd be able to tell me all about it. But I imagine if you just went to your scientist on the street, it's probably not something that they've heard uh, is a particular issue. I love the phrase scientist on the street. I'm always just stopping random scientists on the street. You can spot them with their lab coats on. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, I would suspect it's more in the realm of starting to recognize this as an issue uh, or even being baffled that anybody's even raising the question. It's like an invisible problem. And But it's just as much of a problem as gender and ethnicity diversity because we, we need all those different views in science and it's, it's the same argument and it's a good one. Corey, I feel like I've heard within the scientific community quite a few people talking about 
difficulties accessing science and getting into science, I haven't heard that many conversations about rising income inequality and plans to tackle that. Were people already having these conversations and looking for ways to broach this? Or are those conversations not even happening on that topic? Like, I haven't heard a lot of people complaining about high salaries getting too high. There's certainly a lot of complaints about low salaries being too low. But income inequality, is it's complicated. You know, it's not altogether a bad thing. I mean, you want to have a little bit of, uh, you know, difference in salaries because you want to have high salaries to, you know, attract top people and to reward good performance. Um, and I think it's just an open question, just how much inequality should we have in society or in the sciences? You know, how much is is appropriate and how much, you know, is, is bordering on being kind of unfair? At least in the U.S., it's actually very hard for people to talk about salaries and money. It would be easier to ask somebody about their sex life than about what they make. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely bumped up against that. It was just... Um, it's not a lot of data out there. Not a lot of people talk about it. Salary negotiations are so, you know, confidential and sensitive. And so that, again, puts certain people at a disadvantage. You know, there are some people who have strong connections in the sciences and so are able to ask their friends and their uh, mentors and their network to find out, you know, what's a fair salary for this kind of job. I'm going to interpret that um, that pregnant silence is meaning we have uh, we have solved inequality. So let's move on to our third topic for the month, which is returning actually to something we discussed briefly on a recent a Nature podcast news chat. Facebook couple Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg have set out plans for an incredibly ambitious project. Lizzie, what are they hoping to do? Ambitious is definitely the word. They are hoping to solve all diseases by the end of this century. And yes, I did say all. Disease. What do we mean by solve here? Well, I think they want to cure. They want what people, I think they said, um, may still get sick, but they will get sick less and they will not be sick for so long. And they've, they've put $3 billion at the moment towards this, which works out, I think that's over about 10 years, so it works out about $300 million a year. Well, first up, let's just do a quick straw poll. Who actually thinks that this goal is achievable by the end of the century? Well, let's start with you, Lizzie. Do you, do you think this, this could be achievable? I, I would say it's probably not achievable, but um, it might not be a bad way of tackling the problem, having that as your goal. How do you feel about it, Mitch? Well, my first question that I am is, what does he mean by all diseases? What counts as a disease? Is it being nearsighted? Uh, <laughs> is aging a disease? Uh, and if so, you know, when does it set in? Where do you draw the line? And that sounds like just a philosophical quiz, but I think actually it could come back to bite them in terms of the scope of what it is they're trying to do. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. The uh, initiative has these really <laughs> ambitious and lofty goals. But it seemed to me that they were going to be funding primarily basic research, the development of uh, tools and technologies. So, um, you know, as we all know, basic research, there's there can be quite a gap between, between that and developing tools and technologies. And then taking that to cures is you know, can be a, a long and, and indirect uh, journey. So they may be setting out some, some big goals, but they're definitely starting at a very basic fundamental level. So we'll see if they get there. And I do wonder if more money is going to be channeled into this, because although it sounds like a huge amount when you say $3 billion, actually those kinds of figures are going into science through public funding already. And it's not like people are sitting there twiddling their thumbs. 
It's a lot of money, but there are a lot of diseases. There are a lot of diseases. I think, um, in a bit of an answer to your question, Mitch, they did mention some by name. So I think heart disease and, and then a few others. The, the, the top killers, I think, are what they're thinking about at the moment. It seems to be increasingly sexy for philanthropists in this in this manner to be getting involved in research in one way or another. Are there any pitfalls with this? Is it fine for people who have billions of dollars to just be throwing that at research? Or should researchers be at all nervous about this? I like that they are spending their billions by giving it to research. I guess the question is who decides where that money goes. When you have money that comes from public bodies, it's there are usually big committees, so it's not 100% democratic, but um, you know, it's not the entire population that decides, but it's people in the know who decide. But the question is, if they have a lot of power to direct where the money goes, that is a very undemocratic way of, of doing science that people might quite justifiably worry about. Also, you, you can worry that because governments around the world are facing increasingly stringent budgets, maybe they would be tempted to start backing off of their support of basic research and letting the rich people do it. That would be a massive worry. Yes. I, I guess, and, and that's the thing, is if they've already made this money, then it's great that they spend it on research. But I guess there's the question of, are the companies that they're running also paying all of their taxes? Because that's where the, the rest of the money for research comes from. Yeah, I wonder how this $3 billion figure compares to the amount of money Facebook has been accused of avoiding paying in taxes. I wonder. And it also, it, it comes again to this idea, it kind of actually relates to what we've been talking about, that there is perhaps a bit of a wealthy elite who is becoming even more powerful. And I, and somebody actually put um, a comment that I thought was quite interesting on our story about the, uh, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative and it said that uh, Mark Zuckerberg's net worth is now over 55 billion, apparently, billion dollars, um, and just saying, would it not be better if society didn't let him accumulate that much, that obscene amount of cash, and instead it went, it was, uh, the money was spent on research, but via, I guess, yeah, being collected in taxes or being kind of more spread out in society. Do you think researchers care? Do you think researchers are just happy that more money is coming into research? Or do you think this question of where the money originally comes from and where what the intents associated with it matter to to the research on the street. Yeah, that that is going to depend on whether you've got one of the grants. Remember, if you have a private foundation giving this money out, they're under no obligation to have the proposals peer reviewed. They are under no obligation to use that money to cultivate talent outside the major centers, it could all end up going to the people who've already got lots of money. I was interested in the um, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative. I think they are going to try and set aside some money for people who are not yet tenured, you know, the junior scientists, uh, young up-and-coming rising stars. You know, that would be great if if um, you know less established people could could also uh, enjoy some of the uh, some of the grants from this new initiative, and it is worth saying that sometimes researchers actually want um, funding from these private foundations because sometimes they come with fewer strings attached. There's a bit of a drive now for governments to fund research that they think will have some kind of impact, and it can be quite short term. And one of the ideas as well with this initiative is that you have long grants um, lasting many years, and you have big groups of people, and that's perhaps something that doesn't happen with state funding so much. 
that's almost it for this month's show. But before we go, I'd like to explain a bit of the behind-the-scenes Backchat magic. Backchat is sadly not live, but the benefit of this is that we can edit out all the expletives that Mitch has been uttering early on throughout the show, so no one would ever <laughs> guess that they were even there. But Lizzie, you actually did have to watch your expletives earlier because you were live t- today on this day of recording. Absolutely. So today was when ESA's Rosetta spacecraft crashed into the comet some 700 million kilometers away in space um, and so we were we were on Facebook live actually which was something new for us and nature we've never done that before we did have a few mishaps we had a, a, the camera falling off its tripod and a few <laughs> but yeah as always the show must go on and we had some fantastic guests there Corey and Mitch have you ever had to do live either video or audio not me no <laughs> uh, I've had to do live radio on book tours and it's a bizarre experience uh, because, yes, you're always watching what you say. And you very quickly start developing certain spiels that are answers to specific questions which inevitably come up. My only experience of, of live, I did student radio, and in spite of the very low listenership figures, I found it very high pressure. I was really nervous throughout it, but you seem to, to keep your cool a lot better than I ever did, Lizzie. I think... Um it being our first foray into this helped because, you know, it was always going to be the best Facebook Live we've ever done because we hadn't done one before. <laughs> that was a low bar to, to step over. Exactly. And also, because it is live, anything can happen, but at least that means you can't prepare too much. So you just have to kind of go with the flow. Thank you all three for joining me. If you listeners haven't got enough of Lizzie Gibney, Curry Lock and Mitch Waldrop, then make sure to follow them on Twitter. Where can they track you down, Lizzie, first? I'm at at Lizzie Gibney. And Corey? At Corey Locke. And Mitch? At Mitch Waldrop. And if you want to know my stream of consciousness, I'm at Climate Adam. And as ever, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Drop us a review on iTunes, tweet us at Nature Podcast, or send us a nice old-fashioned email, podcast at nature.com. Domenico Marchesan has been listening for four years and uses the podcast to keep him sane while he's getting on with his housework. Glad we can be of service. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam Levy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.